If you donate to a Christian organization and your state government publicly discloses your name as a donor, leading to potential harassment from people who don't agree with a biblical viewpoint, is that a violation of your free speech rights? The U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on this important topic and we're going to talk about it today. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, and I'm joined today by our president, Victoria Cobb. Well, we're going to be talking about some of our most cherished American freedoms during this show, and we just celebrated the beginning of all that with Independence Day, July 4th. So, Victoria, how did your family celebrate the holiday? Our family has a tradition every July 4th. We actually haul ourselves down to South Carolina, even if it's a kind of a short weekend. You know, you get one extra day sometimes, but we just, we get to go. Matt's cousins have a lake house, and we just get to see all the family and play. And my kids just, we don't get enough time with the cousins. And so for us, it's really cherished time, even though it's a little bit of a long drive down, long drive back for just a couple of days. That sounds divine. I would love to spend time at a lake house. I will say the one funny thing is we often don't actually see fireworks because we're often literally on the road when everybody's shooting fireworks. So sometimes we'll do that drive back and we'll be looking off in the distance and see, you know, a baseball stadium or whatever off the the highway with fireworks. But we actually often don't really, you know, do the most traditional thing about July 4th. That reminds me, last year when we had just moved to Virginia, Michael and I decided to do the Skyline Drive in the Shenandoah area. And we saw just a spur of the moment, we saw these awesome fireworks um, going off in someone's rural farm backyard. So we pulled over kind of at the end of the driveway and we're just watching them. And then at the end, um, the person yelled out to us, we're done now. (laughs) (laughs) They knew you were watching. Sometimes private displays are some of the best. You know, that's a controversial thing because South Carolina, as you know, has has allows fireworks done by private citizens. Virginia, not so much, but everybody does them anyway. (laughs) Well, this summer also continues to bring us some really significant Supreme Court decisions, and the last few weeks have brought us both good and bad news on that front. On the good news side of things, the U.S. Supreme Court came out with another very encouraging decision that gets into First Amendment issues. Tell us about that. Yeah, cancel culture took a huge hit last week from our Supreme Court. Uh, They had a decision in front of them. It was Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, and it was a case involving nonprofit conservative and religious freedom groups. And what it was was that California has basically put into place a law saying that groups like the Thomas More Law Center and others have to hand over their top donor names and addresses to the state. And the Supreme Court said, nah, that's not acceptable. Yeah, and this is affecting groups with a Christian or Catholic background that they're being told they have to hand over their supporters. And that's why I think it's important to keep in mind that Christians, especially in California and even here in Virginia, they have experienced things already like hate mail and death threats when they've supported groups with biblical viewpoints or done something like sign a petition on an issue like protecting marriage. Yeah, California has a terrible history. We know that after their marriage battle, people lost jobs over revealed donor data. And so it's really important. But we've seen issues like this, even in our home state of Virginia. We have parents in Loudoun County who have found their names uh, on a doxing list for opposing critical race theory at school board meetings. Um, And that really is why this ruling is so important, because ultimately we're talking about people's freedom to associate with groups and people that share their values and concerns. So you don't want that information to get into the wrong hands, especially in an environment where people are taking hostile actions against others as a result of what they believe. 
Yeah, and I think the discussion around this court case was that this was having a chilling effect, which then makes it a free speech issue because if you're donating to groups who are representing your viewpoint, that's a form of speech that you have free speech rights to support those groups and come alongside them. But then if you know your name could appear publicly on some kind of list and people could persecute you for that, it does, I think it does intimidate people into not donating or being afraid to do something like sign a petition. I mean, I'm going to be honest. We've had donors with our organization say, does my name go anywhere? Because they do have concerns about their job, even with what we do. Um, and certainly there are a number of organizations that, that weigh in on issues like sexuality or marriage that at this point are just so hostile. But, you know, in this case, what was really interesting is especially because it was California and California has already showed it can't be trusted with the donor information that it had demanded in another case because it basically found its way on the Internet. And that I really appreciate that the, the Supreme Court even noted that, there, that the risks of this are heightened in the 21st century because there is the Internet and everything seems to leak. There's just people need to understand there's not much privacy left, but certainly the state can't be trusted for privacy. Exactly. And another interesting thing that came up in this case was that there was already this 60 year old Supreme Court precedent dealing with a very similar issue. And that was a case called NAACP versus Alabama. And that involved Alabama at the time during the civil rights era demanding that the NAACP hand over its membership list, which at that time, that did carry a very real threat of members being physically attacked and threatened. So it's just kind of odd that California would resurrect those same kind of tactics. I, you know, I also think of the history of our nation and think about how anonymous publications were used. If you think about, there were pseudonyms for people that wrote things, Federalist Papers, Thomas Paine, the, the Common Sense. Those things were trying to advance the cause of government, but not have retaliation brought upon the author. Those things are instrumental to our whole history. So the idea that we would forget that and say, we're going to all of a sudden force everybody out in the public with what they believe and how they want to say it and what who they give money to is just wrong. Well, just to summarize the bigger picture on this whole case, overall, how big of a dent do you actually think this ruling is going to put in cancel culture right now? I mean, is it really going to help alleviate what's going on from a nationwide perspective? Well, cancel culture is two parts. It is one side government and one side private sector. So on the government side, this puts a huge dent. I mean, we had a bill in our legislature we had to stop that would have disclosed our donors. So every state's been dealing with this. And now I think they know they can't do that. So it does shut the government down. That does not change the fact that we still have corporate culture out there trying to, you know, fire people for what they believe. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just now joining us for Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. For more information about us or the topics we're addressing, you can visit familyfoundation.org. That's familyfoundation.org. Well, we also got some not so good news from the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was that the court said it was not going to weigh into this Grimm versus Gloucester case, which dealt with a high school right here in Virginia. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, we were certainly disappointed. We had hoped that the Supreme Court would recognize the role of a local school board to be able to set their own policy. And there were some mitigating circumstances around this where they kind of said the school board had already made the changes that needed to be done in the bathrooms, that this child should have been able to use a bathroom. And, and there were there were things. So the good news is, I'll just say that it does not apply. We, we should not worry that this shuts down all of the efforts we're making in localities to be able to set their own policies, particularly with connection to the Department of Education's model policies, because those policies go way beyond where we're talking in this case. This case was only about bathrooms. This case was specifically about one specific transgender child. And the court even noted this issue of your your child has to persistently uh, show that they are believe themselves to be a different gender than their biological sex. And what we have in the model policies is very different, which is to say that anyone on any day can can announce themselves as any gender. That's much more of a safety issue. And I think the court can recognize the difference here. Yeah. And those are model policies that our Department of Education is trying to push into every K through 12 school for Virginia. It's much more radical, you're saying, than even what this case involved. And this, I just want to back up a little bit and specify that this case involved a female student wanting to use male bathrooms. And the school board was actually trying to, as I understand it, respond to the community concerns. Um, But you're saying this case, um, it, it doesn't cover locker rooms and overnight school trips and the radical policy coming down from our State Department of, Educa- of Education is just covering all those things in one fell swoop and trying to force every school to do that with no respect at all for privacy or physical safety in those spaces. So Yeah, and it does not include the parent deception component we've talked about many times here. So this case was about a very limited set of circumstances. Yes, we're disappointed because we think a school board needs to react to its own community members, but um, we need to take it with a grain of salt as far as what it means for every other situation that we see fi- we find every county in Virginia. So we just want to encourage people not to lose heart that you can still um, speak up in your community about protecting every kid's physical safety and privacy rights, especially our young women in these situations. And if you want to learn more about how you can do that with what's coming at the school boards right now, um, just visit familyfoundation.org slash protect every kid and you'll find lots of good resources there and more explanation about what Victoria mentioned about the schools being actually told how to deceive parents in this policy, which we need to fight back about. Yeah, and we don't want people to feel like uh, we've we've lost all hope with this court either, just because they make one bad decision. We've had some good decisions. We, you know, we had decisions that have erred on the side of the faith-based entities, for example, on these issues when we had the adoption case. So there have been some good things um, in this direction. This one was disappointing. And it does seem like the court maybe is more comfortable with just more pure First Amendment free speech kind of things, but maybe not so much with the sexuality issues. I think there is struggle with and this is good. This is the point we often make, which is there is a a direct clash between sexual freedom and religious freedom. They they are. It is very hard to make a world where the two can coexist. And the reality is that the court is struggling through that. That's what we see. We see that struggle where they want a world to be able to say, yeah, we can protect all the faith based entities and we won't force faith-based people to do things that violate their conscience, but yet we actually want to sort of make all these um, exceptions for folks who struggle with their gender. And they just they just haven't been able to figure this out. And so it's and I think it's a uh, I don't think you can what do they call it? Split the baby is the old is the old yeah. expression like the Solomonic, but you they're know, trying to they're trying to. 
Well, it's that time again. Time for our Inconceivable Moments Award, where we're featuring examples of the absolute lunacy and craziness that happens when cultural leaders try to give guidance completely apart from biblical principles. And we're calling this the Liberals' Most Inconceivable Moments Award. Inconceivable! Well, this week, we just have to comment on the lunacy, the real lunacy, and the really dangerous situation, actually, that results when these politically correct gender identity policies are put into actual practice. Yeah, we've been warning about this for a long time, and it's actually starting to happen. We are now starting to see family-friendly places disappear with these laws to protect biological males being allowed to use female facilities and vice versa. What happened is, news came out this week that a teenage girl was allowed to walk around without any top on. And yes, we're talking about nudity from the waist up at a popular family-oriented public pool in Pella, a city in Iowa. Yeah, this happened at the Pella Aquatic Center, a very popular public pool for families and kids. Like you said, it has a lot of fun slides and kid-friendly stuff. But this biological teenage female who is apparently identifying as a male was allowed to walk around topless and also go into the male facilities like locker rooms, apparently. And of course, this caused quite the disturbance and outcry among parents who had little kids there. This is all happening in front of their kids. Yeah, and I also thought one of the concerned residents brought up an excellent point to a local reporter. This person said, quote, if someone were to take a picture, it wouldn't be viewed as some boy at the pool in his swim shorts. It would be a topless photo of a biological female and it would be child pornography. That is so true. I don't know if, if people think out all the consequences of these policies like that, where it actually puts children, teenagers struggling with their gender in potential danger like that. I think that is a real risk um, and, and maybe even not a risk of reality. But sadly, all those concerns seem like they've fallen on deaf ears at this point because the city of Pilla has a non-discrimination policy that protects this kind of thing. If someone identifies as transgender and wants to dress like the opposite sex or use opposite uh, sex facilities, I think that policy has really tied the hands of the pool managers at this point. I think the bottom line is this needs to be a warning first for families that even places that we think are family friendly may not be anymore based on these policies. But second for everyone, that if we don't step up and engage this issue, this is the environment that we have to expect for our children and our families. Yeah, this is going to be the result. So wake up now, people. Well, I guess that does mean this week's awards got to go to the city of Pella for creating these laws that have resulted in eliminating any kind of basic standard of modesty and decency in even the family pool environment. Thanks for joining us for this week's Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. Visit us at familyfoundation.org. That's familyfoundation.org. See you next time, and don't forget, we are stronger when we speak together.